Well, there are no sweeter words to the heart of a Christ follower than that I am a child of God by no doings of my own, huh? Powerful stuff. Well, uh, glad you're here this morning. We are, if you weren't here last week or if you're new, we have uh, started to teach through over the next year or so the book of Isaiah. So welcome. Uh, with fear and trembling, I have been in the text of Isaiah over the past uh, few weeks and I'm excited uh, for what the Lord will do in us as a church uh, as we look at this ancient text that is so powerful. Uh, for all you Tennessee fans, I, I want to say this morning, I'm sorry. Um, I actually, we're pulling for you yesterday. But I, I want to quote one of your great heroes and Peyton Manning to start our morning off. I recently saw on a, on a TV little mini-series about Peyton on the NFL channel. He said this, If you don't take notes during a film session, it is a complete waste of time. And I thought for us as a church, I want to say to you, maybe not that strongly in terms of waste of time because the Word of God is much powerful than it film session of football. But I want to say to you, I want to challenge you to bring your pen and grab an outline and to take notes. And I want to challenge you to really read ahead in the book of Isaiah. If it's ever been important, it is important in Isaiah because it's a book most of us are unfamiliar with. And so I want to challenge you to engage your own minding heart uh, before you come to worship on Sunday mornings and when you get here to take Notes, as the great Peyton Manning said. Well, let me start this morning by saying that the Proverbs tell us that hope disappointed makes the heart sick. Yet we as humans continue to place both our practical hope and our ultimate hope in people, places, and things. And in time, what happens is this turns our hearts uh, to become cynical, and cynical, being cynical of heart is really the first step toward hopelessness in a very sick and broken world. And so as God's people, the question we will be asking all through Isaiah is where do we place our hope? As God's people, we'll be asking and answering this question, where do we place our trust? Isaiah chapter 1 begins to tell us this, begins to express this to us by first exposing us to us. Isaiah 1 is holding up a mirror to us by exposing the human heart to its persistent tendency to trust in the things that should not. And it does this by taking us back to the people of Judah the very people of God who had trusted, as we'll see throughout the book of Isaiah, trusted in other kings, trusted in other gods, and even trusted in themselves. This chapter of Isaiah 1 serves us well in the sense it is a general introduction to the whole book of Isaiah. It gives us a clear outline of Isaiah's entire message. Isaiah 1 shows us the cause of the problems, the false ways in which the people were trying to deal with the problems, and then calls 
And then it calls God's people to the true and only way of deliverance. That, folks, is the 66 chapters in Isaiah. And the problem for God's people here in Judah is really the same problem for you and I. It is sin. <laughs> and no one likes to look and linger long at their sin. Can you say amen to that? Yeah, we like to dismiss it and pass it on. And at the other point, when it comes to our sin, a lot of us are not even aware biblically of what it means to be convicted of our sin. And so I want to read for you this morning as we start to look at the sin of Judah and ultimately our own sin. I want to read to you what a definition is for the conviction of sin because it is much more than just mere guilt feelings. It's life-giving. So here's a, a definition I found from Dr. Ray Ortland. He says, guilt, a conviction of sin is not mere guilt feelings. It is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul. And this is in your notes. Releasing the pressure and letting the infection pour out so healing can begin. It is a health-giving injury. It is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by unkindly confronting us with the light we don't want to see, the truth about us that we are afraid to admit, and the guilt we try to ignore. It is the severe love of God ruling over our dishonesty, over our willing, willful blind, blindness, our convenient excuses. It is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undiscerned in our lives. It is the merciful judgment of God declaring war on the false peace we so often settle for. It is the breakthrough from darkness to light, from death to life, and from faking it into really living connected to Jesus. I have told my kids since as young as from this high up, as far back as I can remember, once they place their trust in Christ, that the war they experience in their heart when they sin is the evidence that the Lord Jesus lives in you. And those who have Jesus not in them don't experience this war. But most of us as believers fail to take the time to sit in our sin and feel the gracious hand of God's conviction. Never do we find God's grace until we are willing to see our sin and neediness. Never. One writer put it this way. He said, oh, the power of the gift to see ourselves as God sees us in our sin." So last week, Monty started with verse 1, and he talked about Isaiah having this vision under these four kings. And so this morning, we want to begin by looking at what that vision was. Uh, as we do, we need to recognize what's happening here. We have this holy judge of all the nations brings this formal indictment upon his people. And he does so as his, as his people are gathered to pray to God to protect them from the invasion of an Assyrian king named uh, Sennacherib. They are looking, as they usually do, God's people, for comfort from the prophet that God is going to protect them. And instead, what they find 
is they find a severe rebuke. And so read with me, if you would, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. I'll read along. Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel, my people, does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, for they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have uttered, they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or even softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, besieged, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so, here, Isaiah calls or, or has a courtroom. And I put first point in your notes, the courtroom of the Holy One of Israel. Verse 2, the first part of verse 2, tells us that the Holy Judge of Israel is holding court. And he is calling as his witness the cosmos, the whole world, to testify as the prosecution. He makes his charges against his people. He says, the heavens and the earth give credence to the dignity and the truth and the voice of God and the judgment of God. And as they witness that, the second part of verse 2 tells us that God is not speaking to a pagan world. He is speaking to who? His children. And if you look at the tone here, it is a cry of pain from the throne of heaven itself. What wounds the heart of God is that we are rebellious toward him even while he blesses us. Israel has been chosen, if you think about it, from all the people of the earth, not because she had anything else better than any of the people, just chosen because of his grace to be the sons and daughters of God. He declares in the end of verse 2 that they have been raised up and cared for by a perfect father and parent, him, God himself, and he says they have rebelled. They, the children of God here like us, have failed to orient all their life around his ways and himself. They, like us, have their nice exteriors and are even unaware of their rebellion. We think of ourselves as nice Christians, just trying to do the best we can. But if the truth be told, 
day in and day out. If the truth be told, a lot of times we don't even want much of God. I am reminded, based on verse 2, of a quote by Wilbur Reese that I was exposed to nearly 30 years ago. And I think it describes what's happening here in the chapter 1 of Isaiah. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a person of the opposite race or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of eternal in the paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. That's the picture here in Isaiah. In verse 3, Isaiah tells them, <laughs> when children rebel against their father like they did, it even makes animals look intelligent. Even the ignorant, he says, ox and donkey know enough to know whom they belong, to whom their master is, and who they can depend on and trust and place their hope in. But we, God's own children, are unaffected by his love for us, and we run around and place our trust in counterfeit masters over and over and over that never satisfy. You can write in your notes one word, ingratitude. He says in verse 3, my people, uses the phrase, do not know. They do not understand. And I thought, how crazy is it for us to treat God like an add-on to our busy lives who is the first to get scratched from the to-do list when he is absolutely crazy about us. Israel has lost her way. And verse 4 tells us why. He starts verse 4 with the word, ah. Ah. It is a word that tells us this is a cry of lament, a cry of anguish. Isaiah wants us to hear the tone of the pain in the voice of God, that God's people would become the very opposite of what he wants and needs his people or the church to be. And here we're told the very root of their problem and ours. It is they have forsaken and despised the Holy One of Israel. Their sin was all-consuming. We need to understand that to forsake the Lord is the opposite of seeking the Lord. And seeking the Lord means an intentional determination to be with Him, to meet with Him, to draw near to the Holy One, to draw near to our Holy One. And this disposition to learn God and to follow Him in all His ways, this hunger for God and God alone, and the opposite of that is to forsake and despise him. Here, God's people are choosing, have chosen, God's chosen people are living like they are back to stranger and alien status. Jonathan Edwards puts it like this. He says, murder, theft, lying, sexual sin, etc., 
is a mere flea bite compared to forsaking and despising God. The childlike wonder and all has died. The majesty of our glorious God has dried up like a forgotten peach. That's what it means to forsake of the Lord himself. And then Isaiah goes on in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, and he gives us two pictures of what this looks like. Two images of what it means for a people for, to forsake and despise the Lord. And the first one is in verse 5 and 6. It's an image of a man who has been beaten from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet as a result of forsaking the Lord. His sin has destroyed his life like sin always does. You can't play with sin. I think back to conversations with people in my office and they come in and life has fallen apart and as you dig into their story they've been worshiping somewhere in town but underneath when no one knew they've been wallowing in sin and it always gets you. <clears throat> this man who is beaten he is unable to connect the dots between his life falling apart and his own sin. So what does he do? He returns and lives the same as he has and never learns his lesson. Sin is so unreasonable and so unreasoning. This is the person you would say, how's it been working for you? And they would say, terrible. And they would return and keep living as they're living. That's the picture of Israel. That's her. And then 7 and 8, or in 7, yeah, verses 7 and 8, he gives us another picture of the condition. Isaiah says this picture is of a desolate and conquered land. A desolate and conquered land. We'll explore more of this as we go through Isaiah. But historically here, none of the kings, the four kings that Isaiah listed in verse 1 of chapter 1, none of these kings served that Isaiah served under were fools politically, economically, or militarily. Their foolishness was spiritual. For all their worldly wisdom, this country sunk into ruin. When God's people live contrary to his ways, they experience the destructive consequences of their choices. So those two images are the backdrops, the metaphors, if you were, the illustrations of what it looks like. A beaten man in a desolate country, wiped out by its enemies. And in verse 9, as this courtroom scene ends up, we have a glimmer of hope. <laughs> There's a glimmer of hope here. And the hope has nothing to do with the people. The hope has everything to do with God. Look what he says in verse 9. And the daughter, I'm sorry, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. 
So although forsaken and despising the Holy One of Israel has brought Israel to the end of her rope, here in verse 9 comes the unmerited, gracious preservation of the people of God, of the bride of God, and I thought it's a miracle that the church has survived. The only reason, Isaiah says, the only reason we as God's people do not stoop to Sodom and Gomorrah that you can look in Genesis 19 was completely destroyed because of its sin by fire is God is committed to preserving his church. He has always kept a remnant alive for his purposes. He is more committed to you and I than we are to ourselves. So that's the courtroom scene. The Holy One of Israel has said, you are guilty. Accusations have been made. And now he moves from that scene and this personal sin, and he begins to, begins to address their hypocritical worship. Point two, verses 10 through 15. Again, let me read. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is as abun, abun, Say it with me. Thank you very much. I knew that. It just didn't come out. New moon is Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You know what he says here? I cannot endure sin while you are in the midst of worship. I'll expand on that later. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. These are heavy words, and they come to God's people who have absolutely been messing up what he has described as worship. Verse 10, Isaiah shines the light of God's truth on their worship. Imagine how God's people would have heard Isaiah say what he said. Us, verse 9, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Whoa, 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 whoa. We are God's people. We're worshiping. We're doing exactly what you told us to do in the book of Leviticus. And in verse 10, as Isaiah makes his transition from verse 9 to 10, Isaiah responds back to that and says, you're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. You are Sodom and Gomorrah. You are that sinful. And then verses 11 through 15, Isaiah accuses them of corrupt worship. 
He accuses them of being so concerned with the outward form that God has prescribed for them in Leviticus, as I said, that they have maximized the physical and minimized the spiritual. They have been concerned with the external and not concerned with the internal. They're doing everything right on the outside, checking all the spiritual boxes, but inside their hearts for God are dead and apathetic and far from him. After living as they please, during the week, they show up to worship with no confessed sin, no repentance, no engagement of God during the week, and they think they can just show up and worship and do outwardly what he has prescribed for them as a people with festivals and sacrifices. God says to them through Isaiah, what use to God are your sacrifices and festivals if it's not accompanied by a life of devotion to God that shows itself in the lives of its people where they live, work, and play? Isaiah says here, it is not that God cannot endure sin, for he knows we are sinners. He is long-suffering toward our sin. But what he hates here, Isaiah tells us, is worship that leaves sin unchallenged, unchanged, and unrelenting, which is the seedbed for even more sin. The outward forms of worship had replaced the conformity to the will of God. They were doing all the right things on the Sabbath, very biblical, but living as they have never worshipped on the Sabbath at all. Folks, we must consider that. We must sit in that. We must, if necessary, let the Spirit of God convict us of doing that. That is the word application to us from this as God's people, his church. I could sum it up by quoting Isaiah 29 or Matthew 15 when Jesus quoted Isaiah and said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Be honest with yourself this morning. I've had to be as I studied this week. What kind of worship is it that God cannot endure? What kind of worship Isaiah tells us that God hates, that burdens his heart, that has made him weary? Verse 15 tells us, When you spread out your hands and make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. What does it mean for us to lift our hands in prayers and our hands have blood on them? I go back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, when Jesus said, You should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift therefore before the altar and go and be first reconciled to your brother. Isaiah is telling us that murder takes many forms. Character assassinations, backstabbing, insults, angry outburst, gossip, slander, rage, racism, lies, gracelessness, and condescending superior attitudes toward others who are not like us or don't agree with us. It's treating a human being differently than God has treated you. It is being ungracious to a human being when God has been most gracious to you, his people. And then we walk into church and we sing and we listen to the word and we pray with no repentance. That is the worship that God hates and is weary of and is tired of and he needs his people to change. Their worship is hypocritical. They're unaffected by their time, corporate time with the body of uh, his people or with the body of Christ in our times. They're unaffected. And yet in spite of all this, I could hardly read this because I went over my notes last night, this morning. In spite of all this, the Holy One of Israel's call of grace invites us to come to Him and repent of our sin and worship Him inti intimately. Huh. <clears throat> God is not like me. He is not like you. He gives his people a gracious invitation. The Holy One of Israel gives us a gracious invitation, even after all that, to come. I thought, isn't this amazing that the Holy One of Israel, who has existed from eternity to eternity, appeals to us, that he, she called to us and asked us to listen, that a holy God would bother with us at all. Verse 16 tells us, let me read these last few verses, 16 through 20. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Verse 18, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. <clears throat> Verse 16 gives us this simplicity of what makes intimate worship of a holy God. He says, wash yourself, 
and make yourself clean. I want to make sure we don't think that that's some kind of self-justification or antithetical to the gospel. This is a call to repentance. It is a call to change our attitudes. It is a call to accept our responsibilities for our sins and then think, act, and live and respond to God's great grace to us. Verse 17 It's simply that just as God has done to his people, that he's been just with them, he's cared for them. When they were a spiritual orphan, they are to treat others as he has treated them. They have experienced all of this from God during the Exodus. Remember that? And the Exodus began, if we remember, when God's people were being oppressed. So God got them out of oppression, cared for them, raised them up, And he says to us, why in the world would God's people treat people poorly when you have been so well loved? And I want to remind us that the cross places places us under a far greater obligation to love others than the exodus ever could. Not even close. And then verses 18 through 20, maybe my favorite verses in the whole text. He says, come, let us reason together. Martin Lord Jones says that the whole message of the Bible is summed up in one word, come. Another writer said that this this passage in 18 and 19 is one of the most famous expressions of grace in the whole Bible. The theme of rebellion has been strongly developed in this text. The guilt of the accused has been firmly established. And here, in eye-opening and vivid language, the people of God are reminded of the depth of their sin and iniquity, and we have reached this point of crisis. What will God do to his sinful, rebellious, and hypocritical people? Let me make it more personal. What will God do to us as his sinful, rebellious, and hypocritical people? That's the question of the day. How will God respond to us when there's no doubt that we are guilty? Verses 18 through 20 tell us grace. Grace intervenes. Here it is, the gospel. Even in the book of Isaiah, we see the gospel. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Folks, this is not just a statement. It is a promise for God's people then. (laughs) And it is a future promise for his people that are to come, including us. It is a picture of the gospel. The divine judge who has called court reasons with the accused, and makes an offer nothing less than a total pardon. Mind-blowing. The people of God, like us, are offered this on one condition. They cease their rebellion. They turn from their wicked ways and repent and place their hope and trust 
and the Holy One of Israel. Here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to get in whatever posture, eyes closed, head down, just get in a posture where you can hear. And I'm going to read some things to you, and I want you to sit in your sin. Close your eyes, head down. I want you to let the Spirit of God show you who you really are in your sin. All your secrets. And know that I have already done this myself this week. All your duplistic moments in your lives. All your self-justifications. All of your excuses for your sins. All your addictions. All your self-preservations. All of your pride and judgment of others. All of you pointing out clearly the sins of others while being blind to your own sins. The unkindness against your spouse, your children, your neighbors, your co-workers. The attitudes of ingratitude and entitlement and self-centeredness and superior attitudes toward others who are not like you. Your apathy toward God in light of his great kindness to you. I want you to let all of this sin rise to the surface. Let it rise and allow God to convict you. To give you a new awareness of your sin and his holiness. Then, as you see it, let the divine surgeon lance your infected soul. So that you may heal and change. And now repent. Turn from that. And to help you do that, I would like for you to look at the screen of a video by J.I. Packer on what it looks like for God's people to repent. In the military, Nobody doubts what's meant. When the order is given, halt, about turn, quick march. It means that the soldiers are being told to turn their backs on the direction in which they were going and to start marching in the opposite direction from the way they were going before. And that's what repentance is. You see, human beings, by instinct, and this is uh, our fallenness finding expression, by instinct, we walk at a distance from God. And God says, turn round, face me, and walk towards me. The basic problem with you fallen human nature is that we all want to be independent of God. God says, stop it. And the reason why the theme of repentance is neglected, as indeed it is, not only in modern secular society, but in the church, is because it's a costly thing to repent. It does mean 
reshaping your life in quite a radical way. And people, just because they find it too costly as a prospect, they try to devise a way of being Christian which doesn't involve anything as radical as about turn quick march. And we who preach the gospel and seek to explain Christianity to folk, we, I think, have to take that as a challenge and talk a great deal about, a great deal more about repentance and the necessity of it than most of us do. The end, of course, of walking Godward is that fellowship with God becomes a real and rich reality more and more as one lives the life of repentance. And those of us who, by God's grace, have begun to learn to do it, testify, if asked, to the joy of the new life of being closer and closer to the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Until one begins to take repentance seriously, this is going to be a closed book to you. So I beg you, start taking repentance seriously. Will you do that?